Welcome to the Get With It podcast. I will be your host, Elizabeth. This podcast will focus on the decline of women in technology and how our grassroots organization works with the community to foster relationships and reducing the gap of women in tech. We will be talking with both men and women on how to continue to move the needle forward on those relationships. For more information, please check us out at getwitit.org. And welcome to Get With It podcast. Today we have a wonderful guest with us, Brian Forsyth. Did I say that right? No. For edit <laughs> Forsyth. Forsyth. Scythe. Like a scythe. Scythe. Like a Forsyth. Sith. I thought that would be a Sith, not a scythe. Siths are from Star Star Wars. Oh, okay. <laughs> So, but I honestly think this is fun. So I don't know that we, we should, should be recording. We, we should be recording this. Yeah. So Brian Forsyth. Did Not, I say it? No. Yes. You yeah. Did. Woo. Okay. And um, set achievable goals. I right. <laughs> set the bar low for myself. So um, we also have my girl Angie Angela Lopez. Yes, her ma'am. professional name. Yes. I know her as Angie. And as you all know, Angie is on uh, the Get With It board. She is the president and the visionary, and we're all just the pawns in her game. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are. No. No? No. You are the visionary. Um, By the way, this podcast, I I believe, was your vision, and here here we are. Oh, that is true. Oh, and here I am, a pawn in your game. (laughs) And now we've brought Brian into... Brian, now Brian, the pawn. <laughs> now you welcome, he, welcome. He, he might be the mastermind by the end of the day. He could be. He could okay. be. So we are really excited to have you today, Brian. And we're going to talk lots of stuff, but uh, we're first going to talk about you and your background and where where you work, what you do, what you do, what I do. So Brian, so. what do you do? <laughs> So I I teach these days. So what do you teach? (laughs) I teach for a software development boot camp called We Can Code It. Oh, I thought you were going to say driver's training. You don't teach driver. Now I would like to. Now let me. So public service announcement: (laughs) the rightmost lane on the highway (laughs) is for entering and exiting. (laughs) It's not for driving slow. So you clearly were a driving instructor, and now you, what do you teach now? I'm aspiring. Um, software development okay. for a, um, a Java-based full-stack boot camp. We're called We Can Code It. We have a campus here in Columbus and one in Cleveland. Yeah, so what's, what's unique about We Can Code It? So, yeah, I work for We Can Code It. Our founder, Mel McGee, started things up in Cleveland a few years back. Women were coming to her asking her how they could get into coding and they felt excluded by the existing culture because let's face it, a lot of, a lot of places it's pretty much a sausage fest. It is pretty much a sausage fest. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I mean, nationally, from an average perspective, you can look up at the Bureau of Statistics of Labor Statistics, but for computer programmers, um, women make up a very small percentage, uh, 20, 20%, 25%, depending on what 
title you look for, whether it's a computer programmer, other people cite 20%, uh, depending on what company you go to, it could be even less, right? They could be checking all the boxes. So um, yes. our mission, we used to talk a lot more about diversity. So our, our, our mission is inclusion and diversity. Mm-hmm. And um, our mantra, as they say, is uh, equity through technology. So oftentimes, diversity is merely demographics. Mm-hmm. So it's when everyone has a seat at the table, that's inclusion. When you can check all of your demographic boxes by including the wait staff in the room, that's a diverse group, but it's not an inclusive group. Very powerful. So, so you said Mel started this uh, in Cleveland. How'd you guys get to Columbus? Like, is it, I mean, things are good, right? Like, what? Talk about Columbus for a little bit. So. They were targeting um, nearby markets and going to where there were jobs because that's what we need are jobs if we're going to have a boot camp. And they found me the second week of the first boot camp. (laughs) Oh, the boot camp already was up and running? And then they were like... Four days. So, well, so, Four days. Okay. okay. (laughs) So what were you doing before Week in Code It found you? So I actually did custom software consulting for 19 years before doing this okay wow Uh, yeah well i started doing this so inclusion and diversity isn't just isn't just great marketing it's also it it benefits everybody this isn't selfless nobody benefits from an echo chamber you know i love my craft and to have an echo chamber isn't good the more voices the more viewpoints that we have the better the craft gets Mm mm-hmm so where do you think your craft ha- is that? I mean, w- what was going on when you decided teaching is for me? Is that Did you feel a stalemate in your career there? I mean, like what was going on in the eco chamber and software then? So I think that I've always, I think I'm a teacher at heart. Um, my father actually taught too. So I did run programs like, you know, it wasn't my full-time thing. But wherever I was with clients, I, I would start up programs to help teach or just like, users groups to to talk about tech but i realized because my focus has always been the enterprise and a lot of refactoring and i was a consultant because and i was a consultant and you don't call in the consultants when everything is going great (laughs) what you do is you call in the consultants when you have a horrible mess on your hands and you want to pay somebody uh, to fix it good money to fix it so let me get this right in addition to driving you were also a garbage man (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> just kidding more like hazmat yeah it sounds like a hazmat situation hazmat but I, but I realized at some point that no matter how fast I could educate people how fast I could actually refactor things in the enterprise world to make them better which I can do that pretty fast I couldn't do it as fast as everybody else can write bad code well so right so you couldn't change the people Right? You couldn't change the system. Right. Yeah, sure. Right? So it's like, what do you do about that? Well, yeah, so the, si- the system is is creating those developers. We have people are invested in these failed models, and they refuse to relinquish the, these, what are essentially faith-based initiatives around, well, this should work if we just do it harder, if we just define the requirements better, if we just do this m- more then it will work. But they're not changing how they do things. Because we talk a lot about things like Agile. 
which is great. Extreme programming. We don't call it extreme anymore. But when you actually apply those principles without... I know she just. Right? I mean, I, Thanks, you know, Angie. Personally, exactly, right? <laughs> no, I He's like in this deep thought, and Angie's like, I do. I mean, you know, extreme programming is kind of what happens in the enterprise. Uh, you know, believe it or not, because everybody's just in a, such a rush to get stuff done, and and timelines and everything are impeding, and you well, know, minute, people don't want to no. get things done. No, you're taking people it wrong. So extreme programming, abbreviate XP, is a good thing. We don't call it that anymore. I know because it's not ex- okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm uh, a, I'm well, no, but you can that. explain. For, let's let's just kind of. Put it out there for our listeners because ideally we want to kind of we want to bring new people into this as well as you know talk to the existing people in tech, right? So, so this what is extreme programming like? What in your mind? What do you consider extreme programming? So extreme programming, it's um, so it's a set of principles and values. Um, the agile programming manifesto was kind of built around that. We stopped call, calling it extreme because. It was only extreme in the context of the culture. It's not extreme at all. It's common sense, right? It's things like test driving. It's things like peer programming. It's things like making things visible. It's things like using simple ways to track tasks rather than creating these management burdens of this heavyweight requirements management software. It's, it's realizing that we know we'll never know less about the problem we're solving than we know now. So... Well, okay, Elizabeth, just from as a practitioner myself, um, requirements management software is not the evil. It's over-processing things, right? Because when we talk about the Agile Manifesto, it's about removing process in it. And to a developer, administ- administration is not your key priority. It's writing working code, right? And it's about, if we, if we remember the way the Agile Manifesto is laid out, it's about although we realize the value in the things on the right, we value the things on the left mm-hmm. more. Right. right, like get it done, get working software out the door. Yeah, you want me to fill out this report. Yeah, you want me to fill out my Jira's or my... Yeah, documentation is not necessary. I mean, the code essentially is a developer's documentation. There are things that you have to document from a knowledge sharing base and just kind of accessibility. You have to structure some things, right, for people. So, so beyond the code that life can come, like people can come into the code base and kind of help maintain it. It, it, once you're done, right? Like once you're done sure, building yeah. it, you want to make sure longevity-wise. sustainable. Yeah, you want to make sure that's sustainable. But in, in general, you know, enterprises, they have a core group of people. They come and solve a problem, and then those people move on. So you've got other people coming in the wake to support and kind of enhance and, and manage a, a software solution that's already existing, right? Well, also, we have projects that get stood up, and they make great progress at first, but they're not done with the diligence required of good test driving and things like that. So they're not sustainable. So there's no way non-technical folks, even technical folks, right? You never have a project developed using two different methodologies. You never say, let's develop the same project and test drive it. And let's develop the same project and not test drive it. And then compare the two, especially in the long term, right? So your perception when software is created is that it seems to tick all my boxes, so that was a good job. But you have no visibility into what the code looks like or what it will take to change, whether it will be flexible to change. Well, so speaking of change, you know, what was life like? I mean, like if you talk about describing in an enterprise this mentality, could you also talk about inclusion and diversity from just your past experience? Like like in that environment that creates quote unquote messes that you have to clean up, 
well, what's the environment like there? So generally what we have is we have the culture chooses this group that fits the cultural biases. That's okay. very vague. Okay. But um, so and it goes back to this perceptions thing. So they're, they're perceived as doing a good job in these things, but they're, they have their little bubble, their little echo chamber. And what happens is the way they've done it, new developers come along and the old code teaches the new developers. They don't challenge the status quo. They just do it the way it has always been done without ever questioning whether the reason that they're fixing these bugs is because of the way that it was done. Originally done. And then what happens is this becomes this app becomes unsustainable over time. And what they do is they create a tiger team to create the new app, the big redesign in the sky, and hire the guys that created the original put the guys that created the original app on that team. And what do you think they get? They get Wait. the same old code that so, doesn't work. So I hear you say one thing, guys. Yeah. <laughs> most of them are. <laughs> So, so why do you think that is? Like, is it, is it like, and, and I'm just going to go there because this is a woman in tech podcast. Um, do you think it's, uh, um, is it a male trait to not question? I mean, cause clearly you do, right? Like you're the fixer when you come in, but I mean, just in general, is it, you know, why so many men, why so many people following the order? Yeah. Why is nobody questioning that? Yeah. Like nobody, why is nobody poking back and saying, you know, you and your big ideas. Well, because women aren't good at writing code, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> but <laughs> so, um, because there are none. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I have literally been places where it's an old boys club. I mean, a lot of these cultures, I don't even feel like I fit into for one thought, just because I'm not echoing what they're putting out and um so you're not i've also been asked to leave some of these places generally nicely but (laughs) because you don't play emperor's new clothes yeah 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 so there's no um who listen to you over their fancy terms there is no um there's no there's no diversity of thought even if there's a even if they have a couple women who work there there's no there's still it's it's still just a rigid thought a lot of that comes out of the processes they still believe we can design software like we design cars. Okay, so so there's a lot of mentality um, where that command downed, right? You know, and this is one of the very reasons. hierarchical. Yeah, and, and, and agile environments are very flat, right? We don't have a lot of hierarchy. We, mm-hmm. Everybody just pitches in and does what they do. The because you trust, comments. you hire the right people and you trust them to do what they do well. Collaborative. Right. Collaborative. Well, so yeah. I mean, you hear a lot of companies say, "I want to do all those. I want to benefit from." agility and all of those values, yet I don't embrace it myself. There's a huge rush now to quote unquote create diversity of thought. There's a lot of local companies that uh, want to bring in the, the, the new thinking, the new thinkers. Do you feel like you guys are creating talent that's going, that, that people are going to listen to in that way? Do you feel like you guys are training not only that mentality, but you're training companies as well. Like where does the dynamic change? Like, like it sounds like you're really excited and passionate about inclusion and diversity. You, you have a issue, like there's a clear problem in companies that want to create and they want to innovate, but their culture has limited them. 
I think a lot of companies are trying to be more diverse, more diverse and, and hire more women and hire more um, ethnic minorities that hadn't quite been present at the table. Are they listening? Do you think it's going to make a difference to, for everyone? Or how do you think is this outcome coming, right? Like you guys are developing, you're developing new talent. And, and a lot of it you're developing in this manner, right? Like you're able to teach this new generation of developers. But when they get in a job, do you think they're able to live that? Or do you think they need more support? Like wh where do you think it's all going? So sometimes I feel like we just drive them out into the wild, which in a lot of ways they do. And a lot of times they end up in these big corporate enterprise situations mm -hmm. where they may not have a whole lot of influence, but there's no helping that. And the war is, the battles maybe aren't, but the war is ours to win because over time, eventually this is going to happen. Progress happens whether or not, so the more we, we're seeding, I'm throwing out seeds i'm <laughs> sending my lambs out into the <laughs> the world to, uh, um yeah i mean eventually we just have to the more people we can actually get and that that comes back to inclusion right so mm -hmm. the more people we can get to that level of craft that they understand and can contribute to the conversation actually be included in the conversation if they can get around people labeling them in the culture then the better chance we have it's just it's a numbers game i think well so okay so let's just talk about that i mean that to me that's like game of thrones stuff that's not even like coding right like like it's the it's the evangelical properties of agility right but so, so software development was about code <laughs> clearly i'm not well so what is what what do you learn in software development like what is what are you learning? Like, and not just like, I'm learning to code this thing. Like, because once upon a time, I, I programmed a, a basic clown face on my TRS-80. My dad was a Radio Shack salesman. And, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, Hello World is kind of one of those basic things. And, and, you know, you got HTML from websites and you kind of manipulate that sometimes. But I mean, like, what are you truly learning in a boot camp? Like, what, what are the elements? Because uh, you're talking about values and morals, really kind of painting that into the picture but what is what is a software developer learning so i started on a trs80 color computer too fantastic um, yeah so uh well the way i see well-crafted code the way i see clean code in my job as a developer is to create a language that describes the problem domain so i can solve it mm -hmm. i don't see it as you know, just figuring out the grooviest algorithm or whatever or um, things like that. So that's what I, we try to instill in students. It's a matter of teaching you how to learn, teaching you to be a developer, how developers need to constantly be seeking out and learning new things, frameworks that will allow you to, to test out, to try out what you've learned. So an example that I think is actually pretty great. It's one of my high points. It makes me giggle. Like giggle, like like uh, giggle, uh, like, <laughs> <or> <laughs> like what kind of giggle are we talking here? <laughs> A belty, ho ho ho! Like what are we talking when you say giggle? <laughs> the first one, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. So I, I approached. I, I had one cohort that we approach TD from the start. And that's, that's... Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're throwing out TD. Let's explain that TD. to the audience. Yes. So TDD. 
You may hear people call it test-driven development. I prefer test-driven design. I think test-driven development was great when we first coined the term, but we should see it as a design activity. And it get, helps us get cleaner, more maintainable, um, sustainable code bases. The, what amazes me with my students is that I had one cohort that called it out. We do TDD from Jump Street, and that's one of our differentiators. We make test driving things part of everything we do from, I think it's week two when we introduce it. But we ran into something during the cohort that we couldn't, we do a lot, also do a lot of live coding. So I'll put a, knock a lot of live code together there and we'll all do it together. We ran into something that I can't remember why exactly, but we couldn't write a test for it first. Maybe I just forgot how to do a thing. So we went back and wrote a test for it afterwards. And my students were like, this feels so strange. Because they had always written the test before the code. Now you go out into the, into the world at large, back to um, coming back around to the whole enterprise culture thing. People who have been writing code for a while feel strange that what I'm writing tests before I write the code, but it's all what you're used to, right? So if you start writing tests before code and you think of it as a design activity, then it's foreign to do anything else. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what we're putting out into the world is these people that have that understanding of the craft. They still ask that ultimate question. So how do I know what to test first? But that's... Well, so I haven't figured out how to answer that question well, so all the time. Let's talk <laughs> about the impact that it has on quality, right? Because <clears throat> I know you're using terms like clean code, et cetera, et cetera. But for people who aren't as technical and might be considering or under, wanting to understand a little bit more about code, how does test-driven development actually from a like building and developing code affect and impact quality? Like what's an example? An example. Kind of wow. from a solutions perspective, right? Like like a use case. As a user, I want to log on to my mobile app and make a deposit in my bank account. Because there's a lot of people in software that are on the bookends, right? They're requiring they're business analysts, they're quality analysts, and, and they may, you know, with the trends and now the availability of becoming a developer, they they you know, this is just kind of interesting, right? Like this is like what does that mean, right? And when I say a use case, that's kind of this is what software, the problem that I'm trying to solve. So from a developer standpoint, I mean, that's very complex, right? To log onto my mobile app and to, to dig into all the systems, not just be able to capture the check, but then the check to be able to recognize the dollar amount, it's legit, all that kind of stuff. And then also register it in my backend systems. But from, you know, like if we were just, imagine we were like a startup bank <laughs> and, you know, you are my first deposit <laughs> just from a startup bank. You know, like wh what as a developer, what are you considering in that test driven scenario? I mean, I realize that the code can be very big and complex in that, you know, that's like that's like a, like six to a year at least worth of full time developers at it. But in that scenario, how would you break a piece of that down? And like what is what's an example of how you would formulate a test driven development? Like how, how do you kind of explain that? So I, I, I would approach the answer to that question this way. If I haven't, so you can also test after, right? So, I mean, and testing after is definitely much better than not testing at all. And by testing after, I mean, and when I say test, by the way, I mean automated tests. Mm -hmm. I don't mean QA people that have scripts that 
what I call that is poking it with a stick mm -hmm. to see if it feels like it works because mm -hmm. how do you really know it works? You can't trust code that isn't tested. And the thing with test driving is when we actually rigorously test drive, we only write code that makes our tests pass. So we don't have any code at the end that is not tested. So every piece of code is tested. So we can trust every one of those pieces of code. Now, you have certain, you know, like I said, you have two levels. You have a QA script, somebody making sure they think it works because it seems to do like what they want. You have test after, which might leave gaps in what you're doing because you, you, you already have the code. Now you're trying to figure out what you should test. And you have test first, where you know every little piece of code is tested. And the thing about knowing every little piece of code is tested is every little piece of code needs to be testable. And to be testable, it needs to be clean and well-designed. So TDD is, goes hand-in-hand hand with a clean design and clean code to fulfill that design because you almost can't get anything else because once you start going away from a good design, it starts getting really hard to test and really hard to implement new things. So you go through a constant refactoring cycle, which is where you are changing the design of the code without changing what the code does to make the code more testable. So that does not introduce new th pieces of code, so all of your tests are still valid. They still drive all of the functionality. You know that all of your code still works, but that gives you a safety net that allows you to clean up your code. You go into the enterprise where you don't have tests around your code. I've seen code bases that are thousands of lines long that have they're only covered in 100 or 200 lines, and that code is terrifying because what happens is if you change that code, you own it now. <laughs> but do you think that's part of the power play, right? Like that command town uh, kind of mentality in an enterprise might kind of create that behavior where it's... Well, there's definitely... It's definitely... Um, I've often called it fear-driven development because you've got to get that thing fixed and you've got to get it fixed like now because... They don't really care what what you have to say about it. You're going to get it fixed now, and um, and it gets it gets more and more scary the more that is done because you don't know what else you're going to break. So, yeah, it's it's a terrifying so, world. So well, before you ask some complicated, I was going to ask if it's easier <laughs> to learn. <laughs> so, from somebody who's not technical at all, and you're standing in front of all these boot camp peeps how hard is it to teach them that was that what you were going to ask them okay well let we share the same brain <laughs> so how how difficult is that where do people struggle right yeah like that like <clears throat> you yeah, know they, people, use, people use yeah. applications every day right and and the components of what actually makes that application work is kind of a mystery to most, right? Even just their computer, their desktop, like how all this stuff works. They don't know how it does. They don't care. They don't ask questions. Just don't get a virus and make sure it's fast and my responsive, right? So how do you go from that person who maybe has an aptitude to learn how to develop to all that you're saying, right? Like what is the transition like and, and what are the steps to get there, right? Because yeah, you can't you just be your... like brain out there all that knowledge you have in that head of yours how do you, how do you begin to teach like and even <laughs> how, how has you teach or how do you start to code because i've heard like two different questions there how do you teach people to code yeah how do i teach people to code? yeah and even just in your journey what have you changed along the way right mm -hmm. so brian forsyth 
first day of four day into it class that we can code it versus today. What's teaching your approach? Teaching myself to teach. Oh, well, what you, teaching yourself <laughs> to teach coding because yeah, you I know keep asking all for clarification. Stuff. The question gets bigger. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, okay, so it's kind of like you more know, specificity, right? But people don't understand kind of like the man behind the machine. You know, is it like Fred Flintstone where the dinosaurs like make the machine work? <laughs> How do you get from that perception to this is the structure and concepts that actually make these things happen? You know, what's the methodology like? How do, how do you ease into that? How do you ease into teaching? Coding. Te- teach coding. Oh, my God. We threw them off. I just want to take I a moment. I feel like they're two different subjects. So. I just I want to take a moment and let every all of our listeners know that Angie, this is Angie's work husband, one of <laughs> her work husbands. So I'm a, I'm if a you're, work husband polygamous? Yes. A serial, nonetheless. Serial. So just in case you're like, damn, she is really drilling him. They <laughs> they have like a secret relationship of work husband. Yes, once upon a time, I also worked at We Can Code It and mm-hmm. helped um, spread the good word. Right. Yes. So back to teaching, right? Like we talk about your the enterprise and you're talking about creating these seedlings or like miniature aliens to colonize the world. How do you teach them to do that? Like, what's required? What goes into it? Do I need an MT- MIT degree to come to We Can Code It? Because I feel like in this conversation, I do. Yeah. I'm not sure if we took you if you had an MIT degree. I don't know. Okay. That's uh, <laughs> We'd have to closely look at your, at your, yeah, yeah, why you were there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... <laughs> So teaching was teaching has been a big learning experience for me. So I've always, like I said, did little educational thing. I have three kids, so like I teach them stuff. I'm not sure where the line is right now between teaching and just prattling on about something you like. Maybe I haven't <laughs> made that distinction yet. But um, <laughs> so prattling on about things you like, I like that. So, um, no, I mean, in all seriousness, teaching has actually been very, very tough to learn to teach. And you have to be, I had to be very introspective and like just realize some shortcomings in myself. And also I had to, it's also redefined that the way that I even think about code, little things that I just always took for granted that I never looked at very closely. So what I did over time was I built up tools to allow me, so I approached it as a developer because I did that for a very long time. So, what I what I do is I build tools that are sustainable and respond f- flexibly to change as we go through. And I build those tools to support myself. In the early days, there was a whole lot of whiteboarding, whiteboards and whiteboards covered every day. I built ways to create slides and content and automated processes so I can publish that. But I know I've, div- I've gone all off the, off the actual Well, no. So, no. so, like, I mean, you're a man and you're teaching coding. I mean, there's actually a lot of male instructors. Mm. What, why aren't there a lot of women instructors? Well, isn't it reflective of the industry at large, probably? I mean, to a degree, but I think... You know, some people like to typecast certain qualities, but like, you know, a woman, a a mother who's a developer, essentially, 
is she, could she be better to suited to teach coding? I mean, is this something we need to, to address or develop? I mean, at the end of the day, that you know. That almost sounds sexist. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> sounds equal. <laughs> <laughs> no, you said better. You didn't say just suited. as good. Suited. <laughs> better suited. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's a lot of theories postulated about why there aren't as many women in the industry. I mean, what do you think about that? Like, so there's the, why isn't there a lot of women teachers or why aren't there a lot of women in coding? Like in general, what do, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, it's societal, it's societal cultural pressures, right? That really establish these differences. Um, well, so, okay, Brian, so teaching is clearly challenging, right? Because you have to kind of put yourself in that beginner mentality. Well, so how do you find uh, female students take to the way that you teach? You know what I mean? What do you notice about female students learning how to develop opposed to others? So, um, I mean, the big thing that I'd call unique about women, and this is substantial, it's not that, yeah, it's, I'm not trivializing it at all, is the cultural biases and expectations they face you know thanks to science um, as far as aptitudes go we know that people of all genders pretty much have this fallen to the same spectrum i mean there are guys who adore excellent kicks and then there are women that couldn't care less and there are um, women who love algorithms and men that i mean what i'm trying to say is that they put me to sleep so, so essentially you're saying from an aptitude and a capabilities perspective, there really isn't any difference between men and women. The difference from what I'm hearing you is that, you know, opportunity, exposure, getting past societal expectations and kind of breaking through barriers that have been put on them in society at the end of the day. Because from a classroom perspective, which, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, percentage wise, what are you looking at from your students perspective, like 50 percent women ish or? Well, so it, it varies really from cohort to cohort. Uh -huh. I can't really give the statistics. Mm -hmm. We have um, our women are significantly represented. I think my current cohort is about a third okay. women or maybe I should say people who I. Yeah, not. Yeah. So we're not necessarily cisgendered, but so you asked about their the challenges of teaching them to circle back to what I was saying the biggest things I think are cultural I've overheard them talking about how family members have have expressed in them that they didn't think they were really cut out for doing this because and 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 bright students that I I knew were fine at this it's the pressures they have at home and walking out into the world at large that and we have to deal with a lot of those kind of things yeah so why do you think society judges women like that like what's up with that i mean i know it's not you i'm just saying like <laughs> where, where do you think that even comes from you know are we still kind of stuck on having babies and staying at home i mean like is that kind of where we're at do you think as a society is that is that still heavily influencing that i mean it kind of sounds like it's all slowly getting better over time yeah we'll win in the end it yeah. is yeah the perception is women are supposed to get married and have babies and even if they're career driven they need to do they're, they're expected both mm. but the priority is the family i don't know i feel uh, like that's changing and if you think slowly and if you think that the thought process that 
she may be approaching an age where she wants to have children and get pregnant doesn't impact any hiring decisions, then you are fooling yourself. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, from an employer's perspective, I think people, as much as they don't want to, there's still bias there, right? Mm Because it's like, I'm hiring you and then you're going to leave for nine months? Like what? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Or not nine months. It's like six weeks, right? Six weeks? Sure. But I, I mean, I've noticed there's a lot of movement in the paternity leave perspective, right? Like, I think that's a new thing. Like, guys are allowed to take off for new babies. Like, that's a real thing. It's like three weeks at some places. Yeah. Yeah, we're eventually going to win that fight. I mean, it's... Well, when do you guys get to have the babies? That's when I was... (laughs) (laughs) waiting for that day. (laughs) I have my three. Stretch marks are just not becoming. I'm going to speak for all women here. And, And if you're lucky, if you don't get them, fantastic. But... So, so what do you, where do you think we're at right now? Like if you were to, you know, get a temperature mark in terms of change and, and all of the elements, right? Like the home and the societal pressures plus, you know, development and kind of society where it's at, where do you, where do you think we stand and and where's the room to grow? Like we've clearly got a lot more work to do. Where do you think we're going? Where do you think everything's headed? There's a huge uptick on, you know, women and a focus on girls to, come into coding you know people are be, it's got a lot of tension right now yeah yeah i mean girls who code by the way there's a there's a humble bundle special right now that's supporting girls who code and uh, well and, and other organizations but right here we've got um girl develop it right yeah we have code girls too right so yeah there's a lot of things in the community happening i mean it's it's getting traction schools are starting to address it um specifically you know i've seen several uh posts online that they're saying yeah my daughter she's entered into this coding class and she's still the only girl you know get with it we had our uh our third annual columbus conference um in september 12th and we had our pilot girls track and it was huge success i mean like it was in such a it's such a huge success that it's like people couldn't stop talking about what else they wanted and it really engaged not only the it engaged the girls but it engaged the attendees to want to create a new environment it was like you know how all women who created the women's suffrage movement you know they were all working on the the women's right to vote and they were thinking about us today and that's why they did it. So it's like here you have this huge community of women trying to focus on a future better for to encourage women in tech. So so what else do you think there's left to do? Like what what things need to change to really make tech accessible for girls? We just need women and girls out there doing it and we have to support them. I don't know that how to we need we need folks like you promoting it all. It's um yeah, so when you folks like me teaching as many the uh, those folks how to do it, and it really happens one by one, people right like we've everybody can help. Roll. Yeah, we we've have, all got to roll up our sleeves and do this, right? We need to have two classes of people in this world: women and people who are allied with women. So. <laughs> <laughs> We agree. We agree with you, Brian. <laughs> I like Brian that you used Ally. Yes. No, I think, uh, you know, as Get With It, it's part of our mission. We say we want to make change. And we want to make change be- be so bad 
that we're thinking about what has what's wrong with this picture and the wrong with the picture is one thing you get solidarity right and you get women helping other women and and helping a sister get along but then men have to be at the table too like and they have to be allied with that us that goes it, back to our whole inclusion yeah. thing right yeah mm-hmm. you gotta be at the table and and they have to be accountable for all those as well right it's not that we want to just hand out things we want to we want to allow the people who do have the aptitude and the interest to recognize that they have the opportunity right i mean that's what it all comes down to yeah yeah first comes the culture then comes the legislation Hmm. Ooh, you're dangerous. You're talking in dangerous territories. But so, so Brian, as, as we wrap up the the session, you know, what do you think is important for any woman who's listening or any man, honestly? If you had an advice, any advice to give to a woman who's even considering girl, woman, if you were to give anyone who is. Like you could just speak to them directly. Like you have a friend who clearly shows aptitude and who is kind of like maybe on the fence about coding. What what would you say to them? Like to a, an aspiring developer. That's a woman. This is a thing you can do if this is what sparks your imagination, your creativity. If you have a passion for this, you can do this just as well as any boy, as any man can. Yeah, you can do it. Well, so how do I know if I'm interested in it? I'm like truly interested. Is it, am I like super into every app and, and I'm, uh, you know, curious? I mean, like, what are some of the things that, that say I'm probably going to be good at coding? Like just some common things that I do on a regular basis. So I think the answer to that is not whether you are into the apps on your phone or not. It's whether you're into building things and whether you like to build things. I come at this actually from, so I think of writing code as describing a language to describe a problem, to to describe a business domain. Well, I come from this really as from the perspective of of a poet, not from a person who likes algorithms or likes all the little technical details or whatever. So I see this as, as language. So I like to build poems i like to be expressive and that's the way i see code if you like to build machines if you like to build legos if you like to build things like that i think that's what should drive you towards code and that could be an indicator if you haven't been exposed you might like it i was a rock star at um legos i just we need to clarify language this isn't rosetta stone Mm. right Okay, so that's actually a question. How different is coding as a language different from learning a a foreign language? So I've really never tried to make a comparison between the two, Mm -hmm. a a spoken language and a programming language. What I would say is that programming languages, obviously they're both expressing something. Programming languages have a syntax that you need to follow. So the verb either follows the noun or... The adjective comes before or after the noun. So you have a syntax that you have to follow. And if you follow that syntax, then generally your computer will understand the code that you're putting in. So there is a corollary there. Um, I would imagine that people have an appreciation of languages, may have an appreciation of computer languages. I um, speak, um, I habla español de cocina, but that's about it. That's Spanish at the kitchen, <laughs> right? Is yeah. That, yeah. So, um, 
and I had two years of French. Um, but yeah, it's a little bit like that. So I can see how you can make the analogy. I don't think it's a strong analogy, but if for somebody who hasn't been exposed, there is a syntax and a grammar that you follow. Good answer. Good answer. Nice job. <laughs> Brian, we would seriously like to thank you for coming out and geeking out with us today. Geeking out? I like that. We were totally geeking we out. I mean, totally at least we were geeking out. out. I don't know about you. Were you, geeky, were you like I don't know geeky? because like once you said jump straight, I got really Johnny distracted, Depp distracted. And you started Googling Johnny Depp. I and kind of was like, <laughs> you know, like wrapped up in it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it has been mostly my pleasure. It's been our pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. We will see you next time. And feel free to drop us a line at getwitit.org.